You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today's guest is making her triumphant return to the In Defense of Plants podcast. Joining us is botanist Brianne Smart from the Fat Tide Key Botanical Garden in Laos. You may remember, Brianne, if you've been listening for a long time from episode 108. And since our last discussion, a lot has happened. They are doing great things for forest conservation in Laos. Very important work, largely revolving around sustainable agriculture and just a lot of botanical surveys assessing the status of many groups of plants within the boundaries of that country. It's incredible work. It's very hard work. And it's good to know people like Brini are on the ground. And the best part about all of this is this botanical garden is really gearing up to be for Lao by Lao. They want the community to be involved. They want the community to be in charge and running these things. And really, the role of botanists like Brini are to be there, getting them up to speed and giving them the infrastructure that they need to make their country a wonderful and prosperous nation that supports life in one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet. It's a real pleasure getting to talk with Brini. I am amazed and admire her dedication and effort she puts in to conserving plant diversity. We need more people like her. So let's just get right into it. Here is my conversation with Brianne Smart. I hope you enjoy. All right. Brianne Smart, thank you so much for your triumphant return to the podcast. For those that haven't listened to episode 108, how about you give everyone a little bit of background as to who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, well, thanks for the, the triumphant return, but I'm not quite sure about that. But uh, <laughs> my name is Bryony. Um, I am the head botanist at Parake Botanical Garden in Luang Prabang in Laos, which for those of you who don't know where that is, it's a country in Southeast Asia. Um, it's squished in between Thailand, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, and China. Uh, and we are the first and only botanic garden in the country. So when I last spoke to Matt on episode uh, yeah, 108, hmm. a few years ago, we were just kicking off the garden, just opening for the public. And now we've been open for a couple of years and things are on the move. So Exciting. it seemed a good time to have another chat. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really happy you're back on the podcast because obviously once things kind of get rolling, great things happen and you're in an amazing country for great things to happen botanically. And really, you know, when you think of Southeast Asia and you think of the plight of one of the most biodiverse regions in the world, you know, agriculture really comes to mind and you guys are working really hard on kind of facilitating a more sustainable form of agriculture through the garden, right? Yeah, that's a, a new area of focus for us is the sustainable agriculture space. And I think a lot of people maybe are kind of like, oh, but you're a botanic garden. What are you what are you doing in that, that area? But it's really important to think about sustainable agriculture and have sustainable agricultural systems for a number of reasons. But from a botanic garden point of view, one of the most important things to consider is is conservation. You know, it's very difficult to run around and say, well, you need to conserve this piece of land or you need to conserve that forest uh, when people are struggling to feed themselves. And if you don't have decent agriculture systems that allow people to do that in a environmentally friendly manner and a sustainable manner, then you have the constant issues of people needing to clear more land, needing to put more chemicals into the ground, which end up in the water and all that kind of thing in order to farm successfully. So here in Laos, there's still very good forest cover in, in large parts of the country, uh, and farming has not yet reached that kind of huge industrial scale that we often think of, you know, enormous areas of monocropping with big machinery and, and chemicals. Uh, I can't say none of that's here, but most farming here is still not done like that. Mm. So there's a big opportunity to stop it getting to that stage and to try and introduce some sustainable agricultural systems that will allow people to have you know, a good farm that has good yields for themselves and also for you know, the market and whatever selling of produce they need to do without having that negative environmental impact and that constant degradation that goes on. And I think a lot of people have heard about, you know, the big slash and burn issues in Asia. 
And that's a big problem here. I mean, the standard farming method is people will will literally go to an area of forest and they will cut everything down to the ground and then they will set a fire that will burn through and clear any of the you know small weedy things. Maybe they have to pull out a few big tree stumps. Mm. Uh, and then they have nice quality soil because it used to sustain a nice forest. And they'll use that ground for about two years, depends exactly on, on where they are. And then the soil will be depleted and they'll have to move and repeat exactly the same process again. Having sustainable uh, systems that can prevent them from having to do that is such a you know fantastic opportunity. And, and here in Laos, we you know not haven't moved that far in the direction largely of these big scale industrial uh, systems. So we see an opportunity to to prevent that from happening. So we've got a new permaculture farm and a new alley cropping project just kicking off with some new land that we've attached to our existing garden. So yeah, that's that's our sort of latest project. That's incredibly exciting, and there's a lot to think about there, and I can't, you know, I can imagine that is not an easy thing to just go, well, we're going to do this, and then make it happen, right? And you have all of those logistical nightmares, but the exciting part is, like you said, there's, you're, you're at a phase in this country where those bad habits and those industrialized systems haven't really hit the peak that they have in neighboring countries, but I'm curious to think about traditional versus modern practices. I mean, where do you kind of take this slash and burn and, and continue on ad infinitum until there's nothing left and, and kind of couch that into something that makes sense to the average farmer. Again, like you said, you don't want to take away their right to farm or at all threaten the amount of yield. But where do you even begin thinking about sustainable agriculture in a country like Laos? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a challenge. I guess one thing that sort of encouraged us and gave us some some hope on the matter, I guess, is that a lot of the farming here is still done at a fairly small scale and still done you know, by one farmer and his family or her family. And so it hasn't moved that far from traditional methods. And traditional methods were very much you know, chemical-free, full you know, sustainable cycling like is talked about in permaculture. Just because back in the day, you couldn't go down to the shop and buy a big hmm. pile of chemical fertilizers. That wasn't an option. So slash and burn has been a traditional part of the agriculture systems here and now for who knows how long. And the thing to understand is that you can't just go in there and say you can never do slash and burn again. You're never going to get anywhere with that kind of attitude. And it's also just not realistic. You know, sometimes they have to clear land for a new farm. What it's about is minimizing the amount of slash and burn that has to happen. And traditional systems, you know, varies from ethnic group ethnic group here in Laos. I'm not sure if people are aware, but there's a huge number of different ethnic groups in this country. So the government recognizes about 45 different ethnic groups, oh, but wow. um, ethnologists and anthropologists recognize more like 145. Wow. So each different ethnic group has its own way of doing things and its own traditions. And a lot of those are tied into the land in which they would normally be found. So Laos is very diverse, uh, geographically speaking, and very diverse environmentally speaking. So you have some people who live at fairly high altitude, uh, almost above tree line, and then you have some people who live at sea level. And so you have quite different environments that they have to deal with for farming. So particularly for the hill people, it has long been a tradition to do a certain amount of slash and burn agriculture. But what they used to do was almost a system of field rotation, hmm. where over the period of about... 10 years or so, they would cut and they would burn an area, they would grow there for a couple of years, and then they would move on to the next area, and they would just leave that area, and it would regenerate to a certain extent. It wouldn't go back, obviously, to primary forest, but it would become, because this is the tropics, you'd get some decent trees come up, you'd get you know decent vegetation, uh, ground cover, all that kind of thing, and it would become a useful ecosystem. And they would return to that about 10 years later cut and burn again. And so this kind of rotation that they would have through sort of five or six different areas meant that they were only using that particular, you know, amount of land. Um, in between, the land had time to recover. The soil had time to recover. It was providing, you know, space for plants and invertebrates and animals and so on. So that they kind of get that. They, they understand the importance of allowing the land to recover and, you know, if you could keep a traditional system like that, then 
in slash and burn becomes less of a concern because it's something that they're only doing to clear an area that they're going to return to. So it's not an endless cycle of forever clearing the forest. But the problem is with you know more modern farming techniques and the demand for export produce. You know, people are no longer just farming to feed themselves or their family or their village. They're now also trying to farm for profit, um, which is totally understandable. But they're also attracted by the opportunities to farm in a way that is less work, uh, because I think a lot of yeah a lot of people have never had the joy of of having to to do the farming. You know that it's physically incredibly exhausting. If you consider that here in Laos, you know we can easily have a temperature of over thirty degrees Ugh. on any given day celsius sorry for American no no it's okay it's in fahrenheit but it's hot um and you're out in the sun the whole day just with like a machete or a hand tool cutting vegetation or planting things watering you know doing physically demanding tasks in that heat all day every day that's really tough and if you have an alternative to that you want to take it yeah uh, and so if that alternative is look here's some chemicals put these on your soil, this will stop the pest species coming up, spray these on your plants, it'll make you spend a lot less time having to, you know, remove pest insects by hand or that kind of thing. Of course, you're going to take that option. You know, it, it makes such a big difference to your life. Yeah. So the challenge is to reintroduce these sort of traditional ideas and systems for organics and chemical free and being able to use land for longer term without having to clear again every couple of years in a way that still keeps yields high and effort low. And that's where the challenge comes in. But that's where the permaculture system and the alley cropping system are so good because they're based on the idea that you can do this. You can have a sustainable farm where you can use the same piece of land for many years uh, and you can still get excellent yield and it can still be you know, fairly pest-free, both plant and invertebrate pest, um, and still be fairly low effort for the farmer. And so... It's just getting that idea through and sort of saying, look, you know, we're, we're not offering you a system that's going to make you worse off in any way. We're offering you a system that's going to make you just as well off, if not better. It's going to cost you less money on chemicals and all that kind of thing. And it's going to be better for the environment. Wow. Yeah, that is admirable. I'm curious what in terms of cropping are traditionally being used what are you know the most common form of crops types of crops uh, and and in order to introduce the system do you kind of have to introduce new species into the mix or is this something that can be adopted with whatever is you know being grown currently yeah well the idea is to not have to introduce any new species because that's going to make it um, unsustainable because most of the people who are really going to need to use this these systems are in remote uh, villages that don't have any access mm. to towns where they could get seed or, or other species and also don't have any money um, and don't have any knowledge of how to grow or handle those species. And there also is quite possibly no demand for those at market. So the idea is that it has to work with local species. So because Laos is the tropics, there is a huge diversity of edible plant species available for systems like permaculture. There's so much, you know, there's so many different things that are grown throughout the year that can be eaten. So many different plants that have medicinal use or, you know, use for handicraft or something like that, which can be adapted into the permaculture system. So that's not really a problem. There's more than enough species to pull from, um, and the average farmer grows quite a wide diversity of species already. You know, you don't see a lot of small-scale monocropping here. It doesn't happen because they're growing everything they need to feed their family on the one piece of land. So, of course, there has to be a diversity of things. Right. The crops will vary depending on the time of year. So we have a very long dry season. Our kind of like winter is a sort of six-month dry season, which oh, wow. kicks off in October and runs through till about the end of March. So during that period, we will have no rain. Um, you might get one or two big storms blow through, but there is no rain. So the biggest challenge uh, for farming systems is actually continuing to get crops during that period. Mm. But they're, you know, they are using a diversity of things already. And depending on the ethnic group again, and depending on uh, the kind of environment they're growing in, whether they're up a couple of thousand meters above sea level on the side of a mountain, or whether they're down on the, the wet uh, rice plains, affects what they're growing. 
the biggest challenge and probably the thing that we um, are going to have to spend the most time on regarding, you know, trying to work out what species are going to work is the alley cropping. The alley cropping system requires big alleys, big rows of trees to be planted. And the idea is that these trees are normally uh, legumes, uh, so they will fix nitrogen into the soil. They need to be fast growers that provide good shade cover that will reach a nice adult size within five to eight years and that can handle regular pruning. Uh, and that the, when I say regular, I mean like every three to six months they need mm. to be pruned. Uh, and that you can use the prunings, the cuttings, the bits of the tree you take off for some sort of product. Because the, the idea with alley cropping is you are, by putting in these rows of trees, you leave big gaps between them and in those gaps between them you grow your crops. But by having those rows of trees, you allow them to grow up and the canopy to close, and that shades out any weeds. Mm. And then when you want to plant so you don't have to spend all this time clearing your ground, which is a huge amount of effort for a farmer. And then when you want to plant, you prune the trees and you plant your crops in the alleys in between. And the trees are protecting the soil from erosion. They're providing good home for fungi and invertebrates. They're adding nitrogen. The leaf litter is helping as mulch to keep the soil cooler and damper, which extends your growing season, particularly into the dry time, or if you're having you know, a drought or really hot week or something like that. Mm. So it's a great system. Uh, but the challenge here in Laos is finding the right tree. <laughs> so nobody's doing alley cropping here at the moment so we're the first to try it that we're aware of congrats and so the trees that are traditionally used this system has worked very very well in parts of central south america and in madagascar and the trees that they use are not present naturally in laos so there is one species acacia mangium which uh, is not from southeast asia but it is here in, in Southeast Asia and in Laos, and it's grown quite extensively as a tree of use anyway. Mm -hmm. So we are doing a trial area with that because we know that species works. But we want to try some local trees to, to try and find something that's going to work because the last thing you want to do is have this great system, but then start introducing new plant species to the country. You know, that kind of defeats the purpose a little bit of yeah. and all of that because then next thing you know, they've got away from you and the forest will be full of them. Yeah, no. Um, so, so that is the, the kind of current challenge with that. So we know the acacia mangium, which is already here, works well, and the locals know how to grow it. But we've got to try a bunch of other stuff too. That's exciting, and that's the part I'm, I'm probably most curious about coming from the botanical side of things is as a botanist, as someone that gets to work very closely with the locals, go out into the forest and see what's out there and, and see what different people are growing and how they're growing it. Uh, what is the species selection process like? I mean, do you go out with, you know, you just kind of outlined what a good alley cropping tree would be like, but you obviously have to keep in mind ease of growing, accessibility, propagation, you know, the uses of it in the long run, because again, you don't want to give someone a, a useless alley of trees. So, you know, as a botanist, where do you even begin with this process? Is it a, is, is it interviews with locals or is it more of a, okay, we know this family does this thing here. Let's look for what the closest relatives of it are here. For me, it was more the, the latter, you know, okay. so I'm very lucky to work with, you know, a number of really fantastic Lao staff who have brilliant local knowledge of tree species. So when we started this whole alley cropping uh, discussion, which the whole project was started and brought to the table by a, a gentleman called Jan Golden, Mr. Jan Golden, who's actually Irish, he's based in Ireland, hmm. but he's been involved with the work in Honduras, he's been involved uh, with the whole alley cropping idea for a fair number of years, and he reached out to me a while ago and said, you know, hey, is anybody doing anything like this in your part of the world? And I said, well, no. Um, they're not. And he said, well, would you be interested in us trying to do something? And I said, well, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. And that's kind of evolved to this point. And so there's been a lot of talking to him, but it's also been on my part a lot of research on yeah, what makes a good alley cropping tree. What are we looking for? And then spending a, a fair bit of time having those discussions with the, the locals who know about trees and saying, well, look, this is my criteria for a tree what do you think? You know, what are your ideas? Uh, is there anybody growing anything similar to this on their property at the moment, you know, or using it in some way on their farms? But also thinking, you know, I've been here more than two years now. I have a fair knowledge of the local trees and, and so on by this stage. I spent enough time in the forest. <laughs> uh, 
you're just racking my own brain. Okay, well, what are the trees that I know about that, that might be appropriate for this? Um, so we've come up with a few ideas. Nothing that we have thought of locally is quite perfect, but you can never be sure because we, we just have to try. And the biggest challenge here is definitely that dry season. So mm. what a lot of trees here do in response to that is they're, what's known you know, in botany is they're semi-deciduous, which means they drop their leaves, but they only do it for a very brief period. So it's not a fully deciduous tree that would lose its leaves for, you know, five, six months in winter. They'll lose their leaves for like one month, two months max, normally mm. at the end of dry season. So that is potentially a big problem because you, the last thing you want is your cropland to be exposed yeah. to burning heat of the sun uh, and all of that. During the worst you know, time of year for that. Right. So in an ideal situation, we would have a tree species that doesn't drop its leaves. But that can be a bit of a difficult sell around here when you're trying to deal with something that is also, you know, quick growing, also something that's going to fix nitrogen, which mostly limits you to the Fabaceae, you know, the pea family. Right. Um, something that has a useful byproduct based on the prunings or fruit it produces or something like that. You know, all these other criteria we have to fill. So we have a few ideas in mind, things that don't normally drop their leaves unless they're under serious uh, drought stress, which we're going to try. But all of them have something with them that we think may or may not be a problem. You know, like one species is perhaps the leaves are quite small and the shade it provides is not complete. Like it's not complete canopy closure. So there might be enough light for some weeds to come up. We don't know. We have to have a go. Um, there's another one that is maybe a little bit on the slower side of the ideal growing speed because you don't want farmers to have to wait 20 years for the trees to reach a good size, right? Yeah. And that kind of thing. But we really don't know until we try because nobody's growing these species in rows with crops in between. And, of course, you don't know how they might be affected by being in that setup as well. So, yeah, it's just a, a case of thinking about what we could maybe do and just having a go. Wow, what a fascinating challenge to be presented with as as a botanist. But I'm curious, again, from the botanical standpoint, even moving beyond trees that maybe no one is using to that extent yet, are the predominant agricultural species, when you do encounter their relatives or progenitors, even if you can say that uh, in the wild, are, are the species that are being used generally kind of, you know, early successional, disturbance tolerant, high light tolerant, you know, forest clearing kind of plants? Or do you see a lot of slow burning established forest species that would be around for many years to come? Or is it kind of a, a happy mix between the two? I'd say it's predominantly plants that, yeah, early successional. Yes, you do get a few of the things that prefer that sort of, you know, further along the succession, but mostly it's early succession. And that's simply because it's a light issue, right? Mm. So the smaller vegetable crops that people are growing on their farms need a lot of light. So you have to have a clear open space for that. So anything that you want to plant alongside it as a tree species, um, you know, fruit tree or shade tree or whatever, has to be able to handle those same conditions. You're not going to be able to plant it into a lovely, deep, dark, damp forest, you know. Yeah. People do put those kinds of plants on their land. They often will have those kinds of things maybe around their houses. They might have a small sort of garden area that's more for medicinal plants or plants of spiritual use or that have some other use aside from food. And they will cultivate and develop that area for many years. Huh. Um, and so you can grow some things in there that you perhaps wouldn't be able to grow in a more hot, exposed, um, right. distressed kind of farm environment. But generally speaking, it's it's early successional stuff for everything from you know, small crops through to the bigger trees that they're using. I mean, Lao people do eat a lot and collect a lot of products directly from the forest. Mm. So this is another big conservation challenge here is now what is now unsustainable level of collection often from the forest. So normally if they needed a food crop or a medicine crop or, you know, something for fiber or dye or whatever they were doing, they just go into their local forest and they get it because they have a very good plant knowledge. They know what's in there. They know where to find it. They know when to collect it and how to collect it. So they don't really worry about growing those species because they're always there in the forest. And this is a, a challenge that we're sort of having to, to think about how to address now is, and this is more around an education side of things, you know, that 
that kind of behavior is is fine. Um, in fact, it's great to have all the access to those plants and have that knowledge if you're talking small-scale collection for your family, for your local village. But as populations grow and as forests shrink and become more stressed in other ways, and as there's growing demand from surrounding nations for these products, you know, orchids, certain species of rattan to make furniture, these kinds of things, for these forest products, there's just not enough uh, available and so collection in many cases is at uns- totally unsustainable levels yeah. and the effects are not seen yet or are just starting to be seen and you know again for those who are not that familiar with Laos, Laos is the least developed country in Southeast Asia by pretty much any metric that you can use, GDP, number of people, literacy, medical care, all those kinds of metrics to come out at the bottom. What that means is that the country has a lot of natural resources still available that have not really been used because yeah. they haven't been used themselves. So we're in an unfortunate situation where a number of the surrounding nations who are significantly ahead on development and have much bigger populations and demands for resources, and this is primarily China, Thailand, and Vietnam, look to allow to access a fair number of natural resources that they no longer have themselves or they have in insufficient quantities themselves. And that's everything from hydropower and just water through to, yeah, these forest products. Hmm. So those forest products are are really important, and they're an important part of the the culture and the diet and the traditions of Lao people, but they don't grow them on their farms. And so a challenge is how to to balance that out so that they're not all being collected and shipped over the border, you know, to sell to somebody else, and that they're still going to be there in the future. Yeah. And that's a really interesting concept to bring up because, like you said, it's it's the least developed country in Southeast Asia. But that doesn't matter if all of the other countries around it are pulling out like a like a straw. And I mean, you see that here in North America, we have ginseng disappearing, going overseas to fill the market that has already uh, over harvested all of their own native species of it. And uh, you know, you see it time and time again. It seems to be like. It's every country's right to want to modernize and get all of those things, but there's this sad kind of diminishing returns because, you know, as you modernize, as you kind of push nature to those little brinks into smaller and smaller pockets, the amount of people that then want to go and descend upon them to forage for things, it's it becomes harder to do sustainably or if not impossibly to do is sustainably. Yeah, and it's really a, a very big issue here. And I think there's often not enough knowledge of the scale of the problem because it's it's not obviously it's not regulated in any way it's not tracked in any way but it's a really big issue and i think when you consider that the average lao person has fantastic plant and animal knowledge uh, and a very they're very good in the forest they're raised in them they spend a lot of time in them as kids they you know you could take any lao person i know into the forest and and leave them there and they would survive very well they would know exactly what to do what to eat etc whereas i think that same cannot be said for a lot of Westerners. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of collection going on, and a lot of it's on fairly small scales. You know, like one guy goes to the forest and gets 10 kilos, let's say, of orchids, you know, once mm. a month or something. But there's enough people doing that that it is unsustainable because the demand is just super high. You know, it's particularly around plants with medicinal value traditional medicines and the same is true for animals as well it's definitely not just plants and those are the biggest threats to wildlife and all the flora and all your invertebrates and everything and there's no regulation i mean there are laws in place you know government laws in place about certain species general laws as well about collecting and poaching and so on but it's incredibly difficult to police those uh, when you have a country with as many borders as Laos has uh, and as many deep forest you know you can't have a ranger every meter in a, it's just it's just not practical uh and so there's a lot of that going on and the the challenge is finding an alternative because a lot of these species are not species that we know how to raise in captivity if the animals will grow you know uh, or we either don't know how to or maybe it's very difficult to do so because of the conditions that they require mm-hmm. but unfortunately just running around and and collecting them is just not going to be long-term sustainable in any way, shape, or form. So that's a, a challenge that everyone's grappling with here. You know, the government's grappling with how to deal with it. All the local NGOs and uh, organizations like ourselves focused on conservation and sustainable systems and so on are grappling with that as well. And it's even issues of, okay, if the uh, officials at the border crossing points do seize uh, illegal 
uh, wildlife or plants or whatever. What do they do with it? Right. You know, this is a problem. I mean, I work with a number of organizations here who are focused on animal conservation and uh, dealing with a lot of the challenges facing many animal species here. And one of the big problems that they have is, is not that these border officials are unwilling or uninterested in enforcing the laws regarding trafficking of these species, but that when they do enforce them, they suddenly find themselves with 50 pangolins that they have to feed or look after, and they have no idea how to do that. Oh, boy. And there's no organization or there's no system in place to handle that. Uh, and so that is a real problem. I mean, at least with, with plants, theoretically, you know, they're easier to care for, but that's not necessarily true. Right. The challenge with plants is actually about identification. And this is something that I've discussed with a number of people in the country is that a lot of the issues are, okay, well, it's not okay for you to take species X out of the country, but species Y is perfectly all right. But the border officials have to be able to identify species X separately from species Y and to say, okay, you can't take this one, but you can take that one. Well, that's a huge task to ask for anyone to be able to do. Yeah. Never mind it's the breadth of the entire flora of the country, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think it just, at least by the sounds of what you're saying, there is a willingness to sit down at the table and, and grapple, as you said, with some of these ideas, as opposed to just, nah, we're not doing that. Forget it. There is, there is. And that's, I think that's what gives all of us who are conservation focused here hope is that that willingness is there. The challenge is yes, how to actually address it realistically, you know, how to, to make it something that is possible. What are the small steps that need to be taken? And, and things are changing, you know, people are moving in that direction. There's changes to training and changes to laws and organizations like Parake where I'm working and organizations like Free the Bears who, or the Elephant Conservation Center and a number of local organizations that are working towards these solutions. But it's going to take a long time coming. And I guess the, the challenge is trying to get to those solutions before we run out of flora and fauna to traffic. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, these are evolving issues. These are complex issues. And there's that, you know, it's, it's, I, I can't stand the armchair environmentalism. Well, if it just stopped doing that, like, well, okay, but the world, so no. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I mean, yeah, I, I get very frustrated with that as well, particularly someone who lives here, you know, obviously lived here for a couple of years now. You, you learn about the complexity, you know what it is, the, the realities, the political complexity, the cultural complexity, the whole situation. And I do find a number of very well-meaning tourists who come through for like four days and now they're like, oh, but that's terrible. They just need to stop doing it. I'm like, listen, <laughs> if you had the option to send, you know, 10 critically endangered and very illegal pangolins over the border and make enough money to feed your family for one year, or you had an option to not do that, what are you going to do? Mm. You know, when your family lives in one single room bamboo house with no electricity and no running water in the middle of nowhere, you are going to take the money to feed your family for a year. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't blame you for a second. And so that's the biggest challenge is how to balance developmental needs with environmental needs. And I think that's at the root of the sustainable agriculture problem. It's the root of so much of the conservation issues not just in Laos, but, you know, globally. You know, right. you're looking at your big biodiversity hotspots that need to be really moving on conservation actions. The biggest challenge is development. You know, you can't say to people, oh, well, sorry, you can go over there and starve because you're not allowed to cut down that tree. Yeah. You know, that's not a realistic solution. And the challenge is what is the realistic solution? And so that's really <laughs> what everyone's grappling with at the moment here as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we could probably have a whole there probably are a whole podcast series devoted to that sort of thing but in terms of conservation being the focus of, of really what this is all about for you uh and the garden in general um you've got a, a meeting coming up or something going on uh, regarding red listing of species and the and sort of this iucn large global scale uh, understanding and and kind of monitoring of endangered species care to elaborate on that we are hosting a workshop, a full week's workshop next week at the gardens, which I've been involved in organizing uh, with the network coordinator for the Southeast Asian Botanic Gardens Network, which falls under BGCI, Botanic Gardens Conservation International. So the lady who is the network coordinator for botanic gardens and fundraisers so for this region, uh, Jean Linsky, she's been the main driver for that. This red listing workshop, it's not just red listing, it's identification as well, is a full week next week, Monday through Friday, here at our Botanic Garden. 
and it's focusing on Fagasi families. So here uh, in Southeast Asia, that covers most of the genera of Quercus, Castanopsis, and Lithocarpus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you just say Quercus in the tropics? I did indeed. I did indeed. Yeah, in the tropics, I know. I mean, I get that a lot. People are like, oh, well, you know, because it's the tropics, you won't have any of the stuff we have in temperate zones. No, no, no. Hold your horses. Not true. <laughs> yeah, so the thing is, you know, you think about those species and you imagine temperate environment, right? And mm. you're not wrong. But in the tropics, you have those temperate environments. What you have to do is go higher. Once you go above a certain altitude, you have an environment that approximates what we would think of as a more temperate climate, where you have a cooler season. You know, it's never stinking hot like it is at the, the lower altitudes. And so you will find, you do find, a lot of fagaci above those elevations. So in Laos, in my personal experience, you start to see a fair number of fagaci once you're hitting above about 800 meters. It does depend exactly where you are um, in the country and what kind of you know substrate you're on and that sort of thing. But for sure, once you're above 1,000 meters, you definitely have plenty of fagaci. Interesting. Uh, all three of those genera are represented here. In fact, you often find forests, particularly in the north of Laos, which is obviously you know the, the cooler area, one because it's high altitude, but two because it's further north, you will find Fagaceae-dominated forests. Uh, and so they are a very important part of the ecosystem. And the same is true for all the, the nations in the region. They all have some. And I think what pushed this whole workshop to start was that uh, in Myanmar, for the last couple of years, they've been doing a project focusing on a checklist of all the Fagasi of Myanmar and trying to do uh, red listing assessments for those species. Because these Fagasi are often at high, or they are at higher altitudes, uh, they're often more difficult to access. Certainly here in Laos, you want to get up to see some, you've got a bit of a struggle to get there sometimes. <laughs> roads or you know you've got to be prepared to to walk up a hill for a whole day and then camp on the top and all that kind of thing is there's not a lot of information about them mm. so obviously we know they're there we have herbarium records and that kind of thing but nobody's really done the the data collection required to red list and the reason we want to do red list assessments is exactly that because it's an assessment of the health of the the ecosystems and the species you know we know we have species a through z but we have no idea how they're being affected or if they're being affected by, you know, climate changes, by habitat clearance, by agriculture, by all these kinds of things. We don't know because we don't really have any kind of data about them. Uh, and certainly in the case of Laos, uh, the checklist lists a number of Fagaceae species. For example, there's 22 different species of Quercus wow. on the checklist now. But most of those species are on the checklist based on herbarium records taken by French botanists in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> and since then, nobody has spent any time looking at them. And so for all we know, they could be critically endangered in Laos by now, or they could be completely gone, or they could be super common. We really don't know. Wow. Uh, and a lot of the issues around that are lack of knowledge on how to identify, you know, one Quercus from another or one Lithocarpus from a Castanopsis or that kind of thing, and just lack of information. So this workshop is bringing together people from the region. So we've got obviously people from Laos, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, China, and then we have a few experts coming in, experts on red listing and experts on Fagasi uh, from China and from the UK to help everyone increase their, their abilities, you know, to train us all up on how to identify different species of Fagasi, both in the forest and also, you know, from herbarium specimens, because there's a lot of herbarium specimens kicking around that are unidentified species <laughs> for this part of the world. And then to use that information to do red listing and to help us to understand what is the situation with all these trees. That all falls under the Global Tree Campaign as well, which is an international campaign going on at the moment to help you know, red list and understand and research and document the world's trees. And so this falls under that project too. And I think it's really important to do these things because it makes us really think about individual species and how they are being affected by what's going on around them. But also because red listing is such a powerful tool for policy change and for, dare I say it, the, the, the dirty word, for getting money. <laughs> if you're going to do conservation work, sometimes you need, well, often you need some funding, right? You need someone to, to put some money in to help yep. you create a conservation area or 
train people or educate people on how to look after their forest uh, space or what not to do, what to do, so on and so forth. And red listing is a well-known international system. And so if you're able to say, well, look, we've got this fantastic piece of forest here and we've assessed this many species and we found we've actually got a number of very rare critically endangered trees in here. That gives you a lot of impetus and a lot of push and a lot of political oomph to help make that area reserve or at the very least to help restrict, you know, access or behaviors or what you can cut or clear or that kind of thing within the area. But obviously if we don't have the data and we haven't done the red listing, we don't we can't do that. This workshop next week is focused around, yeah, how do we identify for Gacy, hmm. but and also how do we use that information to to do red listing? How do we monitor them? What how, what do we need to think about when dealing with these trees? Wow. That is Really exciting, but also a really good perspective to have because I think oftentimes you hear the IUCN red list and what that means for both, you know, policy and conservation as a whole. But again, I think the animal sort of realm clouds our concept of what it means to be an endangered species and again, what to and how we understand endangered species, although we have plenty of unknowns in the animal world, I think more so for the plant world. And, and as you said, you have no idea if these species are common if they're rare, if they're gone, if they're, you know, disappearing fast, or if they're expanding. It's it's the unknown. It's the big unknown. And until you assess that or train people to go out and assess that, you, what do you, you have nothing. Exactly. And I, I think this is a one of the biggest challenges facing any conservation work anywhere is obviously knowledge, you know, lack of knowledge. And, and Southeast Asia is very much one of the, the kind of the last unexplored hotspot, really. And when you consider that it's also, yeah, a hugely important plant area, biodiversity hotspot, that's kind of scary, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the flora of Laos is only about 30% catalogued. Wow. You know, and, and that's that's really terrifying when you consider the speed at which stuff is being lost and the pressures we've already talked about on the natural landscape here. You know, it's very difficult to conserve something if you don't understand it. Uh, and so, you know, this whole workshop around these these trees is just an effort to understand so that we can then know where we're at and then do something. And, you know, Fagasi are, in theory, we think, one of the more vulnerable groups, plant, you know, tree groups across this region because they are more limited in range because they have to be above a certain altitude in order to achieve the environment. They are more slow growing. I mean, you think about the oaks um, or chestnuts or whatever you might be more familiar with in, in temperate countries, they're not the fastest growing trees. No. No, they're not super, super slow either, but they're not the fastest growing trees. And or a number of them, you were dealing with the issue of having male and female being separate trees. So, you know, you, you do have issues of cross-pollination and needing a certain bigger population size in order to sustain reproduction. And because they are slow growers and they do have that issue, they are more difficult to, to look after and that you can't say, oh, well, you know, they'll be fine. No, they won't be fine. <laughs> you know, they're going to need... A little bit more care when it comes to conservation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care when it comes to quick growing trees at low altitudes that make gazillions of seeds and come up like peas, because that's not true. But they are less of a challenge in some ways. You know, you sure. can you can turn a population around and reforest an area more quickly with those kinds of species. But when you're dealing with things with much more challenging uh, environmental requirements. Um, and much more challenging and longer life cycles, like for Gacy, you really you need to to have a good understanding of of how to do it and where they are and what they like and don't like and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and and also this uh, idea of you know money, time, effort, staffing, all of that. You have to have priorities. You can't just do it all every minute of every day. You have to make a to do list, and some things are going to be on top of that list, and some things are going to be lower down. Exactly. And that's a, a reality facing everyone in conservation. We'd love to save absolutely everything all day, every day, but that's not realistic. So yeah, what are you going to focus on? Uh, and where to focus? You know, if you can do proper red listing assessment for a country, that involves also assessing part of the red listing is not just how many of something is left, but where are they? Mm. You know, if, if let's say, for example, a thousand of, of a species remaining in an area or in a country and they're spread throughout, you know, you have patches of 10 here and 10 here and 10 there and 10 there. That's quite a different situation to if you have a thousand, but they're all in one space, you yeah. know. 
if they're all in one place, then that's really critical that you conserve that one place because otherwise you're going to lose the whole species. If they are spread out, maybe you can afford to let a few of those areas go, as it were, and concentrate on protecting others. But also maybe not because maybe the reproductive requirements of species mean that they need, you know, maybe they're wind pollinated or something like that and they won't self-pollinate. won't know until you assess. Uh, and so that's what this whole workshop and the whole focus is, is about. And I would really hope in the future, you know, Fergacy is a great group to deal with right now on the back of the Global Tree Campaign and this work that's been done in Myanmar and they're a nice distinct plant family. It's quite easy to tell you have Fergacy, right? Mm. Like it's not a challenge for people to learn how to identify Fergacy from non-Fergacy. But, you know, in the future, it would be great to be able to do similar kind of workshops and have similar focuses on other plant families or other plant groups that are maybe a little bit more challenging. But this is a good starting point. Yeah. And I mean, just getting boots on the ground, getting people interested, getting people learning, you know, especially working with the local communities who, like you said, you could take anyone from Laos and take them into the forest and they know the forest teaching them what you're looking for, just letting them know, getting them in on the process could probably expedite and help out just so much more too. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, this, that's what this is about. It's about training Lao people how to look for these trees and identify them and monitor them in Lao. You know, the people coming from Vietnam, learning how to look after their ones in Vietnam. Because we do share, obviously not all the species shared across all the countries here, but there are a number of species shared across everyone. You're going to be facing the same kind of challenges. And right. some people are already doing a little bit of this kind of work. Some have not done any at all. So it's a great opportunity to bring everyone together to share information with each other, not just learn from the trainers, but also share information with each other. Because that's really important for red listing. You, know, you can red list for a country. You can red list for the, for the world. You can red list for hmm. a region. Uh, and it can be very challenging to red list for a single country because you might only have one data point. If you've got decent data coming in from all your neighbors as well, and everyone can kind of band together and say, well, look, due to access issues, staffing issues, time, money, whatever, we haven't been able to check that many areas in our own country, but we've managed to check a few. And our neighboring countries have all managed to check a few. That's kind of a, maybe a big enough pool of data that you can start to get some idea. Um, but it requires talking to each other, knowing who the other people are and, and building those networks. So that's a big part of it as well. Right on. Well, this is fantastic work. And I wish you all the best in all of this. It's it's good to know that there's such dedication and willingness, uh, you know, at least at the table there. But, you know, for anyone that's listening, that's getting all fired up and really wants to help out, I realize, you know, Lao is, is very far away from many of my listeners, but there are ways via the Internet uh, and our connected globalized civilization <laughs> that people can help. Um, you know, in terms of most bang for your buck, so to speak, what ways can the listeners help your mission and, and Lao's mission as a whole to help conserve those forests? Yeah, well, what would we do without the internet, hey? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I know I always say Lao is a long way away from everyone, but I mean, probably the biggest challenge here, and again, I'd say it, but it has to be said, is money. We, as a botanic garden, are a private institution. We are not government-funded uh, in any way. We have a good relationship with them, obviously, in order to do the work we need to do. But we are a private, not-for-profit organization. And one of the biggest things we struggle with is getting enough money to do the work that we need to do. We have a large staff, so just on a day-to-day -day basis, getting money to pay salaries and, and keep everything moving and running is the first challenge. So then having enough money left over at the end to do project work can be a struggle. And although the cost of things is lower in Laos due to issues of very remote forests and difficult access and all that kind of thing, costs do skyrocket very quickly for doing project work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, I struggle with a lot, so a big part of my role is to find uh, budget and to apply for uh, grants and things like that for the kinds of projects we're talking about, for the workshop, for permaculture, these kinds of things. One of the big challenges with that is getting the money to build the, the starting point, the infrastructure that we need in order to do those projects. And I think this is something that people are often not aware of or don't think about that much. Yeah, there's a bunch of really great scientific grants out there. They're fairly competitive, but, you know, you can get somewhere, and we do get somewhere with some of them, to do a project on going to the field and looking for this orchid or to do a permaculture project and things like that. But what there is no money for is building a laboratory, you know, just a basic one, building a basic herbarium, 
building basic office space, training hmm. space, uh, research space for staff, paying salaries for staff, paying for staff training, you know, salaries for new staff or specialized staff. And that's a real challenge because something that constantly frustrates me and, and is a big, big problem is that, you know, we've got these great project ideas, there's grant money available for the work, but the grants will not fund the kind of infrastructure necessary to do the work. And because we are a new organization, first of its kind, in a, a developing nation, we don't have that infrastructure at this stage. Nobody has that infrastructure. You know, this is Lao. I can't pop down to the local university and ask to use their laboratory because they also don't have one. Right. Okay. So just simple things like that. And I mean, even something like 30,000 US dollars here in Lao, that's a huge amount of money. Internationally, that's a tiny amount of money. That's the kind of amount of money that we would need to put into place, start putting into place some of the basic laboratory herbarium kind of infrastructure that would then allow us to apply for those grants and to actually do the project work that we really like to do. Uh, and I think, yeah, one of the biggest challenges is watching some of these great little grants, you know, 15,000 here, 20,000 there to go and do some field work and investigate a new species or to go and monitor a, a tree or something like that, that we could totally do if we just had the facilities. Mm. Um, but the grants won't cover that. And so this is a constant challenge for us. And so if anybody really does want to help out, you know, it's really just about getting money for that, which is no strings cash, essentially. So through our website, if you just Google for Parake Botanical Garden, Lao, you will get us, and it's www.parake.com. We have an option through there. People can donate, you know, $5, whatever, it all helps. Or people are always welcome, again, through that same website, there's contact information. If you know of a grant organization or a donor organization or something that you think might be interested in helping out, please connect with us and let us know about that because that, that's a big challenge for us. And I think for the future going forward, if we can get that basic infrastructure in place, that will make such a big difference to the grants and the work and, and so on that we can, can start to do. Wonderful. Well, listeners, you've heard it. Uh, if you've got some pocket cash or, or a lot of pocket cash or know of where cash is, let them know. <laughs> yeah, much appreciated. Wonderful. Well, Brini, I thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. I know you're just starting your morning over there. Best of luck. Keep up the amazing work and, and stay in touch. Uh, I think you're doing incredible stuff. And uh, yeah, Lau is, is lucky to have you. Thanks. We'll uh, keep soldiering on. And yeah, I think there's, there's huge opportunities here. So we'll keep pushing. Wonderful. Well, you have yourself a great and productive day. Thank you very much. Talk right. to you later. Cheers. What a great conversation. I'm so happy to know that people like Brini are working really hard for the people of Laos so that, again, this country can be a wonderful and prosperous nation, but also preserve much of the biodiversity that makes this place so unique. I thank Brini for taking time to talk with us, but I think it's worth reiterating that places like the Fad Taiki Botanical Garden desperately need unrestricted funding. So if you've got a little bit of pocket cash lying around, like she said, every little bit helps. So head on over to their website, which I have linked up on the website, indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just navigate to this episode and you'll get to see all of the links to get there and to be able to uh, give your part, help out. Every little bit counts. We can't let what's happening in places like Indonesia happen in Laos. It just, it can't happen. That about does it for this week. A special shout out goes to Steven, who is our latest patron over on patreon.com slash plants. He is giving at the producer credit level. So this episode is produced in part by Steven, as well as all of the others. You can just look at the show notes to see all of the wonderful producers we have. Please go check it out. Patreon.com slash plants. Consider giving. At the very least, I ask that you consider giving this podcast a review. We are four reviews shy of 200 reviews on iTunes. So let's make it 200. Head on over to iTunes or wherever you get this podcast and give it a review because reviews help this podcast reach more people. And if we're going to cure plant blindness around the globe, we got to get people listening. All right, everyone, that's about it for this week. Please keep checking back in. So many good things on the horizon, as always. But until next time, I hope you all have a fun and safe week. Get out there, get botanizing. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.